0: Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott and this is Welcome to Florida. Right about this time, Craig, our recent episode on Red Tide should surpass the villages as our most listened to (laughs) episode all time. You can, of course, find those both back in the archives. You uh, and your wife recently had a run in with Red Tide. Well, yeah, I wrote a
1: column about this for the Florida Phoenix. That uh, you know, the the Florida Department of Environmental Protection was bragging, and rightfully so, bragging about the fact that Florida has very clean air. That our our clean, we had met all these requirements by the mm-hmm. EPA for clean air. We were the most populous state to have this this quality of air. And I was reading this and thinking, it, yeah, the air is clean as long as you don't breathe in what's coming off the uh, the algae blooms we've got going on out there because you know we've got we've got blue green algae off one side of the state and we got red tide going on the other and the the other morning my wife and I were going out to run some errands and she stopped stock still before she got in the car went sniff sniffed and then said it smells like red tide and she was looking down towards the waterfront park that's Mm -hmm. about a block from our house and I said yeah it's supposed to be in the bay now and so sure enough um and so you know it's it's just, to me, it was interesting, this sort of disconnect of, hey, our our air smells great, unless, of course, you've got one of those algae blooms going on, and then they're actually putting poison into the air. It's not yeah. just that it smells bad, it's that there's actual toxins that are floating up to a mile inland, according to one study, and and can actually affect you. and. And lead to, you know, liver disease and possibly mm. uh, contribute to Alzheimer's yeah. and Parkinson's yeah. and Lou Gehrig's disease. So. Well,
0: and, and golf clap to the state for the air quality. It is not a, yes. a small thing. Absolutely. But looking at the environment as disconnected, like, hey, our air is great. we're We're good. Yeah. And not considering <laughs> the water and the land right. is such a that'd be like saying you know i can bench press 400 pounds but i can't walk upright because my back is so bad well what yeah. good really is that at that point and, and it's 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 one of those and i don't think it's it's necessarily trickeration but when you can when you think about the environment it is a holistic picture yeah uh, and and what good is air quality if you have no water quality in the same way what good is water quality if you have no air quality
1: yeah i kind of compared it to you know the, the language you use when you're trying to pitch someone on a blind date and saying mm-hmm. well he's he's not much to look at but he's got a great personality you know well, our 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 water
0: quality stinks but hey the air is good yeah. you know,
1: well <laughs> this, when it's not yeah
0: <laughs> our podcast if nothing else has highlighted all of the numerous uh, issues concerns and Uh, problems with waters around the state from the aquifer to the Gulf to Lake Okeechobee, uh, you name it. Almost every episode at one point or another talks about water. And uh, our guest today, Cynthia Barnett, author of a brand new book, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. Uh, She lives in Gainesville, also teaches environmental journalism at Florida. She's uh, an expert on all kinds of water quality issues around the state. She's written, Craig, a number of books about that subject.
1: Yes, and and she actually was a a uh, I got to know Cynthia when she was a reporter for Florida Trend magazine, and she was writing about water supply issues. Then writing these brilliant stories about water supply and development and so forth. And then she parlayed that into a, a book called Mirage about Florida's water water supply issues. Went on to write one called Blue Revolution about people embracing water conservation as opposed to mm-hmm. you know water overuse. And then her last book uh, was about rain. It's just an amazing book about. About rain, that among other things mentioned the time in Punta Gorda in 1969 when it rained golf balls on the city. <laughs> but her new book is 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 really great. I've really enjoyed reading it, and so uh, let's, let's yeah let's uh,
0: get to it. Cynthia Barnett, yeah. The Sound of the Sea. You can ask about it in your local bookstore. Find it anywhere online. Cynthia Barnett dot net to find out more about her. Cynthia, now
1: you've written books about drinking water and water conservation and rain. How did you make the jump from those topics to seashells?
2: Well, let me say, I don't think it's too much of a jump, Craig. In (laughs) in the way I think about it, I'll tell you the exact story. First of all, I was looking for an ocean project next, because as you mentioned, I've written books about freshwater. I wrote a book about rain, and this really completes the water cycle for me in a nice way. (laughs) It's like the perfect end to my water cycle series. But to answer your question more specifically, I was at a lovely museum on Sanibel Island called the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum. The science director there, Jose Leal, had invited me to give a book talk about one of my previous books. And it's just a fascinating little museum devoted to seashells and the animals that make them, the marine mollusks. But the statistic I learned there that absolutely floored me was this. The the museum had done a survey of visitors. Many of them were tourists to Florida with their children. And they had surveyed visitors to find out how much they already knew about seashells. And the survey revealed that 90% of the respondents didn't know that a shell was made by a living animal. Most people thought they were stones or rocks. Oh, good Lord. I know. (laughs) And so I just couldn't stop thinking about that after I got home. And it really struck me as such a perfect metaphor for the ocean itself, because we love the ocean as this beautiful backdrop of life, you know, almost like a postcard. It seems so big and beautiful. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what's going on beneath the waves. And it struck me that seashells were such a good metaphor for that. Just like we always love seashells for their beautiful exterior rather than the life inside, we also have loved the oceans as that backdrop rather than the source of life. And so... That's the metaphor I started thinking about. And uh, six six years later, I finally finished a book of seashells.
0: <laughs> I visited uh, Sanibel Captiva as a tourist long before I moved to Florida. And remember the remarkable shelling there and all oh, the beaches full of seashells and that sound the waves would make when they recede over the seashells. And then I moved to Amelia Island. I was like, what's this? Where's all the seashells? <laughs> what Sanibel Captiva is one of the best places in the in the country to find seashells, let alone Florida. What what makes that area particularly uh, so uh, robust when it comes to shelling?
2: It's a good question, Chad. And I think it's fair to say it's one of the best seashell islands in in all the world. And I traveled around the world for this book, and I think I can say that. Uh, fairly without being too much of a Florida homer. (laughs) But the reason so many seashells are washing up on the beaches of Sanibel and Captiva is simply the shape of the island. Most of Florida's barrier islands run north and south Mm -hmm. along the side of the peninsula and Sanibel Captiva uh, runs east and and west. Huh. It's in it's in the shape, it's shaped exactly like the Cheshire cat's smile. <laughs> and it juts out there. And so when the when the shells are caught up in the Gulf currents or in the storms, they are trapped in this giant seashell trap running for those ten beautiful miles along the southern beaches. And that's that's why they have incredible shells and what are known as windrows. They used to be taller than they are now, but, you know, these these big uh, shelves full of of seashells that that wash up in the storms. Mm -hmm. It's
1: it's the only island I've ever been to where where a they have their own dance move, the Sanibel (laughs) Stoop for 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 all the tourists who show up to to collect the shells. And then they they give you last time I was there, I checked into a hotel and they gave me a complimentary bag for my (laughs) seashells.
2: (laughs) they still do that. I got a little bag just a few months ago when I was on Sanibel for something. And that's, we could talk about that, the whole other irony of all of the plastic implements used to <laughs> yes. gather seashells when plastic <laughs> is such a harm to the animals themselves. Yeah, but you do, you get a little shelling bag when you check mm. in. But it, but it must be said that something the culture on sanibel has changed so much in in my lifetime and you probably remember too um, craig when you were a kid people had no qualms about collecting live shells right and there were mm-hmm. boi- there were boiling pots down on the beach all yeah. over all over florida not just in sanibel but in the keys and all over there would be huge boiling pots in Sanibel there were boiling pots in the motel rooms yes. <laughs> so that tourists could clean their shells wow. um, before before taking them home not all not all new to do that and some unwittingly put them in the car trunk but you know people don't people don't do that anymore you don't see boiling pots on the beach or in motel rooms anymore and I think that's a lovely Statement about how our ethics change over time. You know, it gets it gets depressing about uh, to think about the environment and what we're doing to the world and its animals. But we but we also change, and that's that's something I enjoyed about working on this book. Just understanding the extent to which people are beginning to understand what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the, in fact, there was a sign in my room that said, "Please do not wash your shells out." In the in the sink in the bathroom sink. <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: that's right, that's right. There's a little sign at the uh, I think it's called the Island Hotel. This historic hotel. There's a sign now that says it's a little gastropod and flip flops. The gastropod is a <laughs> is a is a spiraled shell, and the little cartoon gastropod says please don't take us home if we are still alive. And that's, that's nice because that's such yeah. a big change from half a century ago when they would be offering boiling pots. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I did like the, I did like the joke that you put in there that I guess people in Sanibel were spreading that the best place to find shells was near the Georgia border because that's how far the tourists would get before they'd start noticing the stench coming from the trunk of the car.
2: Yeah, that's (laughs) exactly right. I love that. I love that line.
0: (laughs) Talk about mollusks, and mollusks live in seashells and make the seashells. Biologically, how do they actually create that hardened shell that we all prize so greatly?
2: So it's a process called biomineralization. It's the same essence of how we make our bones we and other mammals make our bones and teeth but but essentially the mollusks are secreting bringing in uh, minerals from the surrounding seawater to make those hard shells they take in mineral minerals from the sea around them and they build they secrete the shell at the edges so a bivalve the double and hinged shell secretes um, there, there at the outer edge of the shell, and a, and a gastropod, which is the spiraling shell, secretes its shell at what's known as the aperture. That's the part of the shell you hold to your ear when you try to listen to mm-hmm. the sea.
1: Hence the title of your book, The Sound of the Sea.
2: Hence the title of the book, and that yes. is, yeah, that's also the metaphor, the big metaphor of the book is listening. So when I when I set out to write this, as I say, it took it took longer than I expected. <laughs> as I think I've confided in Craig over <laughs> the years, as I was tearing my hair out. But my initial idea was to set out to see what seashells and the mollusks that make them have to tell us about the changing oceans. You know, what's the impact of climate change and our other impacts? But it it really turned out. To be a bigger book than that, I came to see seashells as the world's great fact checkers because they do <laughs> they do say a lot about what's happening to the environment, but they also have a lot to say about people because they've been so important and at the center for human history, even pre-human. History going back to the Neanderthals and and Java Man, who all had their relationship with shells, and so it turned out to be to be a book with people at the center much more than any of my previous books. So yeah, the sound of the sea, what (laughs) what uh, what seashells really have to tell us when we listen?
1: I was fascinated by the the your discussion of shell mania and how it spread. In different waves. The particularly the in the American wave that resulted after all the servicemen came back from the Pacific and had brought shells with them.
2: Yeah, that was that was fascinating. We've had these periods of shell mania in human history. And one was in the 16th and 17th centuries when at, at that time too, it was it was men going off into the tropics. In, in that case on, you know, the first sailing ships to go out and explore the Indo-Pacific. And they start bringing home tropical shells to the Netherlands and, and to England. And people are just amazed at these tropical shells. And that that was a shell madness that was every bit akin to the tulip madness mm. that also happened in the Netherlands around the same time. People just got so excited over the tropical shells and how different they looked from the shells, say, in the North Sea, that their, the prices went up and up and up. And at some points, a tropical, like a single tropical Seashell would would sell for the same as a Vermeer painting, even though because people thought they were rare. But mm-hmm. then, of course, later when more and more people started finding them, uh, they they turned out not to be rare at all in the in the Pacific Ocean where they lived, and so it wasn't a good investment after all. The same, the Shocking. same, <laughs> the same thing happens in Florida. As you said, Craig, when servicemen begin returning from World War II, they often brought home tropical seashells to their sweethearts or brought them home in collections. And there was an extraordinary shell craze in mid century America. It also, it actually had started earlier. There were seashell clubs all over the United States starting in the early 20th century, but this really took off following World War II, and people were obsessed with shelling. They traded seashells by mail order, and the dream, the dream was really to come down to Florida and find seashells at places like Sanibel Island, and there were wonderful Shell clubs and uh shell shell magazines and, and oh. shell craft and just a great shell madness. And another really beautiful thing that came out of that, a lot of the scientists I interviewed over the years had gotten into had first gotten into mollusks because their grandparents had been big shellers during that shell madness and several. Several scientists I interviewed had a grandmother who loved seashells and shellcraft and did shellcraft together. Um, You know, even in places like New Jersey and and the Midwest, people were crazy about seashells. And that that was really a thing. And it's kind of poignant today because now we have, there were these conchological clubs all over the United States. And today we have, Beach cleanup clubs, right? Because there's so much there's so much plastic and garbage on mm. on many beaches that they sort of the beach cleanup club has become more important than the seashell club, and that's sort of poignant. Calcareological
0: is going to go in the welcome to Florida all star <laughs> glossary. I like oh, that one.
2: Thank you. I'm really glad to be in the all star <laughs> glossary. Well, that's and this great.
1: Is, this is sort of the context for for the famous Anne Morrow Lindbergh book. Gift from the Sea too right the the shell madness going on at the
2: time yes i think that was part of it so gift gift from the sea uh publishes in the 1950s and it's it's one of the best selling books of its time and it was a it was this simple little book of wisdom and meditations about kind of about the lives of women, really. So part of what was popular about that book was the seashell craze. But I think what's more important about that book is that she so put her finger on the dissatisfaction of of a lot of women who were kept out of careers in that era and kind of struggling with their roles. And so, Looking back on it now, it seems really soft in the in the me too times, to look back mm. at that book, it you can kind of see, you know, yes, it must have been easy for her, someone with that much privilege to go hide out on Captiva and write, <laughs> you know, anytime she wanted. She wasn't exactly illustrative of, of the typical, a typical woman's experience in mid-century America, but she really put her finger on something that women were feeling, and she compared the lives of women to to seashells. I think you kind of have to have to read it to understand it, but she would talk about different phases in women's lives, and it was just hugely popular. People people loved that book, and they loved it. They continue to buy it. They loved it in a twenty five 25th anniversary edition and even in a 50th anniversary mm-hmm. edition. It's it I think it's one of the best-selling uh, American works of nonfiction in of all time.
0: People will understand the value of Seashells and more specifically the animals that inhabit them as a food source for people and for animals, obviously oysters and mussels and that sort of thing. But what other ecosystem services do they provide the ocean besides tasty treats
2: They're Basically, the world's great upcyclers, they, by taking in the minerals around them in the seawater, they are upcycling the extra carbon, not all of the extra carbon, but the carbon, they use calcium carbonate to build their shells. And so they're constantly taking carbon dioxide out of the oceans and and turning it into this incredible beauty. So they have they have a lot of services, as you put it, to the natural world and to us. And they also kind of symbolize a lot of solutions in other ways. For example, they make some of the hardest building materials known, and they are they are great barriers. Things like oyster reefs prove to be stronger barriers um, than man-made barriers when you when you talk about protecting us from sea rise and stronger hurricanes and all of those things so they they're just amazing in in all sorts of ways and i didn't write a lot about oysters when i started this project i thought i would write more about oysters but as you guys might know entire books have been written just about oysters by uh Mark Kurlansky wrote one, Rowan Jacobson wrote one. I have a I have a friend who wrote an entire book about razor clams. <laughs> so ultimately I had to focus the project more and I ended up choosing 12 iconic seashells that had been really important to people over time. I specifically focused on shells that had been, you know, beloved for their beauty and in art, as well as for other reasons. So that's how I ended up not devoting chapters to oysters and clams. But I do have chapters. on I have a chapter on the scallop, the bay scallop, which is kind of... I was going
1: to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah
2: it's kind <laughs> of, it's both the classic eating, it's both a class, classic eating shell and an incredible symbol of art. Like from all of history, and you know, even even before it was the sloop of Aphrodite, it, it just it just comes into human art in so many different ways because of its beautiful scalloped shape. And so um, that is that is one of the eating shellfish that I really had a lot of fun learning about because it because it straddles those two things, both art and food and i thought that was really interesting
1: well and i loved how you started that chapter by talking about going out from cedar i think from cedar key to collect some scallops to to cook and eat and then t- you tied that into Roman architecture and (laughs) shell oil company (laughs) because it's their, it's their symbol. So,
2: (laughs) well, I, I think in that, I think in that scene, we went out the Hatchie river. We, we (laughs) have been, we have going, been going scalloping for many years and always went scalloping with the kids when they were little. My kids are uh, 17 and 19 now, and we took them scalloping ever since they could swim. And, you know, something I worked hard to do in this book is I, w- I wanted to write about our impacts to the ocean and what's happening to the sea and its life, but I I work really hard to not be preachy or judgmental or too dogmatic <laughs> in my environmental writing. So in that chapter especially, you know, I kind of struggle over time with my own harvesting I always, when I was a kid, I I went conking with my dad and we made conch chowder. And as I raised my kids, we collected all the scallops we were allowed to, and we would fill up our buckets. And to me, that was like my definition of abundance is that I could go collect a heap of scallops with my children and cook them dinner. And it and it seemed so wonderful. And over time and over the course of that chapter, I came to the point where I could not collect a wild scallop. And I don't think I'll ever collect a wild scallop again, because of what I know about how imperiled bay scallops are, at least wild scallops. And But, but by the end of that chapter, I am still going out into the scallop grounds with the kids, but we're taking photographs instead of collecting and we're and we're swimming and we're still having a great time as a family and I think that's I think that's really important to think about how can we still love the ocean and enjoy the ocean without being so hard on it and I think I think sometimes what happens when we write about the environment like Craig and I both do if you get too angry and too preachy. Oh, what was the word? Bill Bellville had a wonderful word for it, Craig. Eco-ninnies. He worried, <laughs> he worried yes. that eco-ninnies would shut people down and just make them put down the book, put down the newspaper, you know, not want to hear it. And I think that's true. And I think the better way forward is to, you know, kind of together think about what is what is a better definition of abundance for us and for Florida? To me now I would think about the abundance of seagrass or the abundance of clean water or having wild scallops out there. All of that feels a lot more important than filling up my bucket as as much mm-hmm. as I'm allowed to but but you know of course this is on the regulators too because they can decide mm-hmm. they can decide how many scallops we can all. Collect each summer, and the more and more Floridians who are out there chasing after the scallops, uh, the the fewer they're going to be over time. It's been really difficult to bring back those populations, although they are they are coming back in a couple of places, but only in those places where we've really preserved the seagrass. That that mm-hmm. is super hmm. important.
1: Yeah, like si- si- the Citrus County area and so forth, and they yes. they really kind of count on the scallop. Harvest every year for bringing in tourists, don't they? So it's so it's become a big part of their economy to save the scallops.
2: Yes, I mean that's that's a great thing about it. It is it is important to Citrus County to save the scallops, and I think I describe I describe going out in Citrus County too, out the Homosassa River, mm-hmm. and that has become it has become such a caravan it's almost like waiting in a disney queue to get out there wow. to the scalloping grounds and that's you know that's kind of too much so again i think i think the beauty of all of this is whether we can enjoy these places we love without destroying these places we love and that goes for gathering seafood and the the last thing i'll say about scallops is that it's it's particularly to me it's per- particularly poignant that we're expert gosh i'm not going to be able to say that word that we're wiping out the scallops because extirpating the scallops because <laughs> they were symbols of abundance From the earliest humanity, like even from before Aphrodite, they were always the symbols for people of kind of fecundity and abundance. And that's what makes it particularly sad to see them almost wiped out and all the more reason to bring them back and and let them be symbols of abundance again.
0: Before we totally leave our wild scallops here on the Gulf Coast of Florida, starting with them specifically and then broadening out globally, what are the greatest threats to their numbers?
2: It's not just one thing. It's not just the over-harvesting. It's not just climate change. It's not just pollution, but it's sort of all of this harm wrapped up together. So climate change is really having an impact on mollusks and their shells all over the world. Some parts of the oceans are becoming too warm for mollusks. And in some cases, the acidification of the oceans that's being caused by uh, too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is actually making it harder for mollusks to build their shells, or in some cases, even boring into shells. And so all of these things are happening at once. And it's not, it's not one thing that is broken. It's sort of, you know, the thing to think about is how we can live differently and live more gently, and live with less, including reducing fossil fuel use and harvesting less, but it's not to say, when I say that, I'm afraid that it sounds like I'm asking people to live differently. And it's really a better, it's really a better way of living. It's a way of bringing back abundance. Well,
0: I think it's about living in balance as opposed to living with a, a totally extraction, selfish mindset. The understanding that this is a society and we are a piece of the puzzle on earth, the earth does not center solely around our needs and is inexhaustible. And I think we're uh, proving that by and by every single day. It does require a new way of living. It does require a more balanced way of living, understanding that nature, we are a part of nature. Nature does not merely exist to serve us. And that's my mm-hmm. environmental ninnyism for the for the podcast. <laughs> I have to yeah. include some every episode. <laughs> yeah,
2: and and I think what's what's important about that is that it is a better way of living. It is, um, you know, it's it's not that we have to use this many fossil fuels to have fun or have a good life. We can live very, very well and live with without um, over-harvesting and without poisoning the oceans and without uh, filling the atmosphere with more carbon dioxide. The the solutions are all around us. It's a matter of, uh, you know, will and, and making these changes systematic. Mm-hmm.
0: And just to follow up on that real quick, ta- and you've been able to travel the world writing this book and see oceans everywhere and what a fascinating experience that is to have. Broadly speaking, ocean conservation, are we moving in the right direction, bouncing back, or have we still yet to hit rock bottom for our abuses of the ocean and and we continue a, a negative inertia momentum?
2: You know parts of the world are doing better than others. I went to Palau and they have I went to Palau for the giant clam chapter which was a very fun chapter to work on in another animal with an incredible human history and biological history and Palau has conserved 80% of its oceans and the the real key here is to conserve great swaths of the ocean. That is what scientists uniformly say in terms of being able to adapt to to climate change and save the marine life and the sea. Uh, there's, a, there's a proposal now in the United States, I think, called 30 by 30 that that suggests uh, saving 30% of, of lands and waters by 2030. And when I heard that, I thought that was interesting that Florida, Florida is nearly there on the 30% of land. And obviously, we still need to conserve more land. So in some cases, it depends on where you are in the world. But I can tell you that on, on so many so many places I traveled to and so many islands I went to, especially the plastic far outweighs the seashells on the beaches. And this is not the plastic generated by the people who live in these places. It is the plastic of, of all of us. And so, and so both in terms of conserving swaths of the ocean and um, reducing our use of plastics, I think we have a long way to go.
1: Let me bring you back to something you mentioned earlier, you mentioned about the conch chowder and and, uh, from your childhood and so forth. I I really enjoyed the chapter on the Queen Conchs and in Key West, which, as you pointed out, is the only place where everything's named for a mollusk.
2: Yeah, and it's it's another irony. Like the scallop, here you have an entire an entire chain of of islands uh, named named for conks, a, a people who call themselves the conks and are mm-hmm. incredibly proud of this animal Conk uh, mascot, yeah. the Conch mm-hmm. Republic, and yet they wiped out their conchs and we we all did not just they people in the keys but Mm. we we floridians and we americans so the queen conchs were disappearing from the keys as as early i was surprised at how early it was i found scientists talking about it as early as the 1920s Mm. and by 40 years ago the florida but finally, banned all harvest of queen conchs, and the and the really worrisome thing about that story is that they haven't come back after 40 years. Wow. Fish and Wildlife banned queen queen conch harvest here, saying, you know, we need to do this because if we if we work together and lay off the conchs, they will come back, and then we can have a conch harvest once again. Well, that has never happened. So going back to Chad's question, you know, what is wrong? What have we done? Have we? Is it over-harvesting? Is it climate change? It's a complex story. And part of it, was overharvesting, but obviously they haven't come back in the past four decades. So there are other there are other reasons that scientists are start are are trying to figure out. One smoking gun, at least for inshore conchs, seems to be ocean temperature. That parts of the Florida inshore waters are just becoming too warm for some mollusks, and that could end up being part of the story for queen conchs.
1: Does the raising of conchs and scallops and so forth as a, as a sort of a valued commodity, though, though, does that make people more concerned about them, do you think? Or, or do they still kind of consider them a, more of a collectible than, a, <laughs> than something that, that is living and breathing in a, an important part of the ecosystem?
2: When you say raising, are you talking about aquaculture?
1: No, I mean just in in terms of raising their profile of, you know, oh we're oh it's you know, hey, it's time to go scalloping off uh you know, off the Florida coast. Oh, we're the queen you know, we're the cocks and cock
2: high school and so forth.
1: Does that make people think about the animal inside or are they still focused on the shell?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I think people in general are focused on shells and on, you know, certainly when we go scalloping, everybody is excited about making the scallops for dinner that night. Mm. And I think this changing ethos that we're talking about is going to get us to a place where we value the animal inside and not just the shellfish we eat or the beautiful pink shell that we put on the mantelpiece. And when you look at when you look at other things that we didn't value in the past that we do value now, that's just sort of Human nature and human history with the environment. When you think about, you know, plume birds from 100 years ago, Mm -hmm. people absolutely didn't value the birds. They valued the, you know, elaborate feathers. feathers. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, seagrass in in mid-century Florida, you know, seagrass was wiped out of Biscayne Bay, Tampa Bay, Escambia Bay. There was just no seagrass. Fish were dying. Uh, Sewage was going straight into these bays. We came to value seagrass. Um, Everglades is maybe the best example. People were terrified of swamps and thought they were awful dark places. And now we recognize the value of a swamp. So I, I see this as a process of ethical change and that people are getting to know the sea Increasingly, and that and that maybe the next generation can know these out uh, these animals in a way that that previous generations didn't.
1: So I have to ask: this is probably the most difficult question you're going to face. What's your
2: favorite shell? Yeah, that's not that's not hard <laughs> for me, and it's okay. funny. It's funny, Craig. I I'm not a shell collector. That's a funny thing about me about me writing this book. I always loved shells, but I'm mm-hmm. by no means. One of these obsessed conchologists <laughs> who who has a collection, and if you ask one of those people their favorite shell, they get completely fl- flummoxed. It's like <laughs> it's like asking a mother her or a father their favorite child. They just can't they can't <laughs> I, deal I, with that question. I,
1: I did ask Harry Lee, Harry Lee, a Florida guy who, who <laughs> Chad doesn't know this, but mm-hmm. Harry Lee, a guy from he was from Jacksonville, as I recall. Yes. And had had at one point the largest personal collection of shells in the United States and Hmm. maybe the world. Um, And I asked him that question and he did. He he got all flustered and finally decided it was the first one. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah see that's funny
2: and and Harry Lee and Harry Lee is he, he's in the book he I I spent a lot of time with Harry Lee he helped me a lot with the book and he, I think he has the largest or had the largest shell collection in the world before he donated it to the Florida Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. but he is typical of really intense shell collectors and not being able to answer that question but in always being able to remember their first shell. And it's a lot like an alcoholic remembering their first (laughs) drink. It's just like, (laughs) I think he was six years old and his was a a tiger cowrie. And he Mm -hmm. just had had this incredible memory of the scissors maker who lived across the street from his grandma (laughs) in New Jersey. And he just could describe that moment Incredibly, when he saw that mounded, that beautiful mounded, polished cowrie shell, and he was just obsessed. And I think some people have the collector's gene. I don't, I don't have that gene. My daughter has it. She, she's collected different things at different times, and you can just see her little brain. When she sees a <laughs> when she sees a Pez or a seashell, she's just gotta <laughs> she's just gotta grab them. But I didn't have that. I just love shells and think they're beautiful. And my favorite is the lightning whelk, which is one of the chapters in the book as well. And the lightning whelk, which I only knew I only knew recently, how important the lightning whelk were to the Calusa people who lived in Southwest Florida when the, when the Spanish arrived. But the lightning whelk is just a beautiful spiraled shell. It looks a bit like a conch, but it's, but it's thinner, and it has these incredible lightning strikes down the side, and it opens to the left. It spirals to the left. Almost all shells spiral to the right, and the and the lightning whelk opens to the left, so it's very unusual in that way. And the uh, archaeologists who work on Calusa and other Native people who really loved lightning whelk shells say that they think there was something about the left-handedness that um, that they were interested in spiritually. So they're just they're just great shells. And on a on a personal note. I have had a lightning whelk on my Christmas tree for about 25 years at the top of, the, top of the Christmas tree. <laughs> like it was just this gorgeous shell that my husband and I found before we were married. And on a lark, we put it on our first Christmas tree when we were young and we have put it on there every year since. So it was kind of funny that I ended up writing a book about seashells with a chapter on lightning whelks.
1: We haven't even gotten it. You mentioned about the Calusa. We haven't mm-hmm. even gotten into the Florida shell middens and how important they were.
2: I think they are so hard to imagine, Craig, what they must have looked like. I mean, even if you've seen the one at Astero Island, which would have been the Calusa Chiefs perhaps their White House, right, where mm-hmm. you could yeah. get two 2,000 people um, that was in, in the structure on top of that mound. It's just incredible to imagine what it must have looked like to see those shell structures all over Florida's coastline. And most of them were flattened for for road building and to um, to spread on farms, one of the most uh, one of the most fun little details I, I found in kind of an obscure academic paper when I was researching the Calusa lands, and and this was specifically happened on Pine Island. There was some uh, history of the mules that were used to spread the shell mounds onto the farm fields on Pine Island. They had to be fitted with these special little mule shoes to go over their hooves so they wouldn't get cut by the pieces of oyster and lightning whelk and all the other shell that was being spread on the farm fields, and then later when there were car tires rolling over those roads, they used to get they used to get blowouts all the time. But yeah, all of all of these incredible indigenous structures were uh, taken down and, and destroyed to build our modern roads and uh, housing developments, and to spread on farm fields.
1: People thought they were they were garbage dumps, didn't they? That was part of the reason, uh, mistakenly thought that.
2: Yes, people all over the United States, including some of the early scientists, thought they were mere garbage heaps and didn't, didn't find them particularly important. But that's, I know that that's kind of the conventional wisdom, but you have to wonder, Craig, when there are obviously skeletons in some of these In some of these places that anyone really thought that they were garbage heaps, some of them were burial grounds. Mm -hmm.
0: Cynthia Barnett has been our guest. The new book out July of this year, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. I'm very proud of myself for not saying she sells at any point <laughs> today. That one has always been difficult for me. CynthiaBarnett.net, if you want to find her online with the schedule of live and virtual events for the book tour. Cynthia, thank you so much. Uh, the book can be found. Check it out in local bookstores and everywhere online. B-
2: thank you. Before
1: we, before we go, I have to ask you, so so what book can we look for from you six years from now? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know, Craig. Like I said, I really like the idea that I've completed the water cycle. And it, it, it feels like kind of a nice sense of closure there. And I have to ask, Craig, I have to ask you about your new book. I read it. I have provided an endorsement for this wonderful book, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. So when is your book out? And Chad, what would you think about me taking over for craig and i'll interview him
0: great idea
2: instead of him interviewing i'll put him on the spot
1: (laughs) the book comes out september 14th uh and uh, but is available for pre-order now and if you order it from tom below books here in saint pete they can provide you with autographed copies
2: Excellent. Well, I, I know, I know a certain blurber who wrote spanning 30 years of extraordinary reporting. The state you're in is a celebration of Florida and its most versatile writer. Pee your pants funny in one chapter and utterly humane in the next. Craig Pittman is Florida's own Mark Twain. And, that was me writing. And, and you haven't
1: sent me I, your bill yet. <laughs> no, but,
2: but as Craig as Craig knows, I've been a critic of the Florida man trope for so for me to say that is really is really a great endorsement. So I'm I'm excited about the state you're in. Well, thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you. We'll keep your number handy, Cynthia. I might uh, take it up on your offer. That's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks thanks for
2: having me on. Bye-bye.
0: I vividly remember that trip I took to Sanibel and Captiva and the abundance, the full size. I mean, these aren't broken up. I mean, these are all the the classic examples of seashells you could want to take back. Mm-hmm. And, and again, at the time I was living in Connecticut, what an extraordinary place. I haven't been back since, but I always think about all the places I want to get back to just, just in the state yeah. that's way at the top of the list. Oh, definitely. And, and go see the, the museum. She mentioned
1: the Bailey Matthews mm-hmm. museum. It's an incredible place. And a lot of, it's interesting. A lot of the uh, pacific shells that they have on display there because they have shells from more than just Florida they shells mm-hmm. from all around the world are from Raymond Burr Raymond Burr no the guy who played Perry yeah, Mason yeah. yes he was a big <laughs> shell collector and and uh he spent time at the museum and became just a big fan of it and so when he died his will uh, bequeathed his entire collection to the Bailey Matthews Museum it's just it's an amazing place i have a i have a i have a lightning whelk story okay lay it on me from from Captiva, we were staying at the um, the same uh, set of uh, the same little uh, motel, which are these lovely little cabins where Ann Mara Lindbergh and Charles Lindbergh used to stay back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Mm. And uh, and when the, our kids were little then. And so uh, we went out to the beach there on Captiva, which at the time, I don't know if it's still like this, but at the time we were kind of the only people at the beach. So mm-hmm. if you can picture this huge Uh, long stretch of white sand and beautiful water and nobody else out there, but us. And, um, uh, it's like 10, 11 in the morning and, uh, I'm helping one of the kids who doesn't know how to swim yet, zooming him around in the water. And the Mm -hmm. other one, the older boy, (laughs) he's got on his, he's got on his little (laughs) swim goggles and he and his fins and he's paddling around looking for shells in the water. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I hear him yelling, dad, dad, dad. And so I, you know, go running over there to see what's wrong. And he holds up this lightning look that I swear is is like, gosh, I can't, as big as like a, a dictionary. And yeah. he said, it squirted me. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, OK, here's the deal. And I said, look, see, see the foot right here. See, mm-hmm. there's somebody still in this shell. So. This is not one you can collect. Let's put this, let's take pictures and then we'll put him back. <laughs> and that's what we did. And I I still, he's 23 now. I still remind him of that from time to time. Hey, remember that time he was squirted in the face by a seashell?
0: <laughs> Welcome to Florida.
1: Welcome to Florida. <laughs>